Johnny. Come on, we'll be late. Come on. Come on, the train will leave. Come on. Well, <laughs> bye. Hey, bye. Bye, Lucy. So long, Luther. You right to me now. I'll be thinking of you, good people. Well, I'm glad to shake that down. I was only kidding, honey. You all know me better than to believe everything I say. <laughs> bye! Bye! Goodbye! And God bless you, good people! Hey everybody, welcome back to Uncanny Cinema. We are here for our first political episode. We have two planned, leading right up to the election, so these should be airing uh, just a few days before all of that hits. And so these will be following, uh, you know, if, if you've been following along, these will be right on the heels of our five Halloween episodes. And so I actually didn't preface what the film was uh, on the final Halloween episode, I wasn't 100% sure how this was all going to work. So this was the rare one where it would be a little bit of a surprise. So we, this time, are looking at 1957's A Face in the Crowd, a classic uh, political drama, cynical political drama, that doesn't really get a whole lot of play uh, modernly. And we will definitely talk a bit about that. Um, it is directed by Ilya Kazan. And it stars Andy Griffith in his first film role. We also have Patricia Neal, Lee Remick in her fi first film role, and Walter Matthau in a supporting role. So we are looking at A Face in the Crowd, and I'll talk a little bit more about the plot here in a moment. But uh, let's introduce our panel of guests. We have returning here one of our regulars, Tim. Hello. We have Doug, who was on The Mexican with us, and he is a student of history, joining us here again. Hey, everybody. And we have another student of history, Dusty. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Um, and uh, Dusty, you uh, actually have a, like a political podcast, right? That I do, yeah. I'm the co-host of a podcast called Gadfly, where we talk about third parties, French candidates, and just generally weird American electoral history. Cool, cool. I don't think I knew that. That's really cool. Yeah, it's really fun. We uh, we just closed up our four-parter on the uh, 1860 election of Abraham Lincoln, and it's uh, it's a complete shit show. <laughs> I have no idea what that could look like. <laughs> okay, so yeah, thanks for joining us, everyone, for this movie. So uh, A Face in the Crowd is by director Ilya Kazan, who is more famously known for On the Waterfront and A Streetcar Named Desire. For me personally, I feel that uh, this is his best film. It's the one I, I connect the most with. I think those other two are, are good films, but I think this one really has something that uh, grabs me more than those others do. And it was written by uh, Bud Schulberg, I believe, and was based on a short story. And the crux of this movie is... That Andy Griffith, who is playing very much against type or the type that we later knew him to be, is like basically a small town drifter. And Patricia Neal plays a reporter for a radio station who does kind of like puff pieces for the radio. And she decides she's going to like go to a local prison for a reason that's never explicitly explained. Uh, like she just wants to like put these like 
people in jail on her radio show for some reason. Um, but she stumbles across Andy Griffiths because he has a guitar. And so she wants like some of this like kind of down home folksy stuff. And he's got a guitar. And what he is is just a guy who can basically work a room. He's very magnetic and kind of charming in almost like a, you know, sort of like bad boy type way. And she's drawn to him and he makes for great radio. And so she and the people who work for the radio station see his appeal immediately and start to bring him on the radio regularly and kind of start to build a show around him. And from there, all hell ultimately breaks loose. Uh, we, we, watch, we watch a man go from essentially nothing, he's just an abject drifter, to by the end of it, have significant political power and influence uh, all through the media. He ends up getting on TV at a certain point and then you know continuing the show from uh from radio to tv as as many people of the of the 50s did who had radio shows in like the 30s and 40s they made the transition into television so it is a very dark uh dark and cynical political film uh i would call very it cynical yeah i would call it like a like a satire kind of a bleak satire and critique on the media and on politics and on corporate America. And while I said this is a classic, you know, our show, we focus on the obscure, the bizarre, the unloved, the overlooked, and the underappreciated. And I, I would say that this is definitely falls in the underappreciated realm and to some degree the overlooked realm because it's, you know, people of the time would have seen it to some degree. If you're a huge movie fan, you probably have at least heard of it. If you watch Turner Classic Movies, you probably come across it. But I myself, it was something I was only kind of vaguely aware of. And I think I watched it for the first time maybe like 10 years ago or something. Dusty, who is a big political nut and a pretty big movie fan, didn't wasn't aware of it. A lot of people I know have never heard of it. So it's while it's like it's a it's considered a classic and it is on the um uh, what, what's it called? The the registry, National Film Registry, or whatever the, the you know the official thing where they bring in movies that are significant. It's we're not talking about like Citizen Kane or Casablanca here, where it's something that is super famous and everyone knows it. Um, so I would say it's it's kind of on the fringes, but it is quite excellent, in my opinion, and I think we we all enjoyed it. And so yeah, it's it's a little bit off the beaten path and. Uh, and so we will dive into a lot of the key aspects for it. And then the only other thing I'll say is this film and our next film, I specifically chose leading up to the election because they both felt very relevant in the era of Trump, that uh, a face in the crowd has some significant parallels, not just to Trump, but to the populism that we have seen uh, unfold in the last five to 10 years. Okay, so we will open the... We will open the floor. I was saying, not only that, it, this is coming on the heels of the uh, the first presidential debate performance. Oh yes, to, I, I and... thank you, Tim. I did meant <laughs> uh, to mention that. So we are recording this uh, a bit in advance. So it is now October fourth, and we knew going into this that uh, obviously there would be a time period from when we record it to when it airs of you know not knowing if the world has exploded yet. So if it has, hey, uh, sorry, but um, 
we we have watched the first presidential debate. It may well be the only presidential debate. And yeah. we also have found out that Donald Trump has coronavirus. That was the late breaking news in the last couple of days. So uh, not not only that he has it, but he is currently hospitalized. He's hospitalized. So that is the current mindset. He's hospitalized. Many people in the White House and associated with the Republican Party have contracted it mostly because of the it seems like the supreme court uh like a group event they had so that's that's kind of where we're at if uh if all kinds of crazy shit has happened since then we don't know it yet but we will soon find <laughs> out so thank you for that reminder tim but uh so i'm sure we will talk some about the trump administration as we go and you know but our focus obviously is going to be on 1957's a face in the crowd so let us yeah. open the floor. What do we make of it? Why well, I, I mentioned I mentioned the the current standing with where we are as we're recording this because I I had watched this a number of years ago um, at some point. So, but I wanted to rewatch it before doing this episode. And the way my scheduling worked out, I watched it the day after the debate. So it was after the debate, but before the COVID news. So. Oh, oh boy. Watching this movie right after watching that debate did not help the mood because as Lytton said, this is a very, this is a very cynical movie and going through this after watching what passed as a presidential debate just really kind of hit home how, how bad things can be and are and even like especially coming after that one of the notes i put on there was re-watching it my first instinct was like wow this is a really unsubtle movie it's very on the nose it is making a point and it is not afraid to just smash you over the head with the point that it's making but then when you put that up against things that are literally actually happening in reality, then that broadness and some of the caricatureness of, you know, Lonesome Roads in particular no longer really seems that unrealistic. And that was, that was like the big kind of feeling I got watching this movie is like, this should be really kind of broad and caricature and seem kind of cartoonish in a way, but it doesn't, it really doesn't anymore. Yeah, that's the thing that really blew my mind with this, is it feels like with so many of these kinds of movies, you're walking a fine line between doing that huge bombast and caricature or being too subtle and being unrealistic about it. I, I kind of compare it a lot to, um, to It Can't Happen Here by Sinclair Lewis, mm -hmm. where he kind of overcompensates that with really bizarre character names and kind of uses that as a bit of the caricature to build up, whether it's like Brazilius Windripper effing him Swain or things, names you would just never hear anywhere. <laughs> and so it's, I, I think it's one of those things that gets really frustrating is you want some subtlety and you want some depth with what you're watching, but that's just not the reality of when this sort of thing happens. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like my point on like Tim talked about it like it wasn't being it wasn't a subtle film and and I don't know that you could do a movie like this um, where it where it would be particularly subtle because the the key of it uh, Tim mentioned Lonesome Rhodes and that's Andy Griffith's character his name's Larry Rhodes and Patricia Neal's character 
gives him the name Lonesome because she's trying to come up with sort of a radio name. She wants to give him something that's catchy. And he's like, oh, okay, sure. And he kind of laughs at it. And this man like has this big brain laugh. He's got this big, wide Andy Griffith smile. He's very personable on the surface. He's very, um, you know, very magnetic. And he's bigger than life, essentially. And uh, it's also mentioned that his father was like a carnival barker. So that plays very much into uh, into what we're sense. seeing. But I, I also think that there's definitely some like similarity and, in, in, you know, like it's it's not it's not that far removed from reality because even aside from Trump, you have these other people in media who the mask have been, has been pulled back to reveal who they actually are. And the few, I mean, there's other examples, but the few that came to mind, you know, Rosie O'Donnell, when she had her talk show way back in the day, she was like the queen of nice. And she was just like this wonderful lady. And then it kind of started to come out that she actually was like, pretty terrible to her staff and stuff. And eventually she started to be called, called the queen of mean. And now it's just sort of like, all right, well, Rosie, we've kind of like reached this like middle ground where like, you don't really associate her with like being nice or mean. It's just kind of like whatever. But in the early days, she was supposed to be just this like wonderful bubbly person. And then that kind of got pulled back. And Ellen is going through a very similar thing right now where Ellen has gone out and been like, oh yeah, I'm just folksy dancing Ellen. And then all these stories are coming out. It's like, oh, it sounds like it's real, real bad, Ellen. And then the, you know, the huge one is Bill Cosby, where you have this guy who presented himself as America's father and grandfather for decades. And, you know, he was America's rape uncle instead. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's something that obviously has been happening for a long time. And Lonesome Roads is a good example of that, of how somebody can be put on the radio, put on TV, and they can know how to capture an audience. They can know how to work you. And, uh, and, and you know, and Trump is another example of that, you know, for, for all of his many faults and ways that people hate him. Um, he absolutely knows how to work the media. He knows, I mean within his limited capacity to some degree, but he, he knows, he knows how to get people riled up. He knows how to play to the camera. He knows how to make moments big and uh, as horrific as they often are. And, but so, so you see that in uh, in a film like this. Where do you fall on that, Doug? On which, on the, how this uh, parallels to Trump, is that what you're asking? Well, like the kind of like the subtlety aspect of like, is there a way to even do this in a more subtle way? Or like Lytton saying, like we have these real life examples. I, I, I was just curious what you thought. Well, I think, well, let me start here. Like there, these type of people have always existed and I, and especially within our political system. Um, and so I think that the movie does a pretty good job of showing how bad it could really get. Um, and I don't think, I, like you said, I don't think it's doing it in a subtle way. Um, I think it's it's very in your face, and and that was almost necessary to do um, because it, they really want. I think when they made the film, they really wanted a broader audience to really realize what was going on here. And when you when you do subtlety in film, you sometimes lose some people to it. Um, whereas this film is trying to make a really firm political statement, not one side or the other political but how 
politics can be affected by media and how corporate America can affect politics and how the demagogues can rise and that sort of thing. And it's saying, this is what happens. Everyone look at this and, and we're looking and, and we're horrified. And, and now we see things like this happening. So I like that they did it without subtlety. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I think for me, the, the, the subtlety question came in more. I realized on this rewatch that yes, there are real life examples like Ellen and Rosie. And like, even if you want to get more political, um, I know Lynn has brought up before, like Bill O'Reilly and Glenn Beck, like actual political pundits, but you know, the movie only shows us the one side. So we see everything from the rise of lonesome roads you know trajectory up to the end and there's no the movie never gives us any indication that there's any opposition to him and his ideas whereas you know with with the other examples like the real world examples we have the benefit of knowing like there have been plenty of people that have been protesting against bill o'reilly or glenn beck and even like ellen uh ellen degeneres there there have been people who have tried to make that story more visible over the years so it there's more of you could call it almost like a, um oh man i just lost the term uh organic um shoot political movements grassroots almost like a grassroots kind of thing where people have worked for a period of time to expose the facade the movie never really gives us that. It presents us all this one side. Here's here's Lonesome pulling the wool over everyone's eyes until all of a sudden he isn't. And that was that's... that was where it came to me, where we get uh, Marsha and I think his name's Mel, right? Yeah. That like eventually Marsha is, is Patricia Neal, who is the uh, re initial reporter, um, and Mel is Walter Matthau, who is a like radio writer. Yes, thank you. So eventually we see them kind of turn against Lonesome and, you know, in various ways work to try to bring him down. But they also have the benefit of, you know, their disillusion because they were behind the curtain the whole time. There's never any indication that anyone outside of that has any misgivings at all about Rhodes and his rise. And I think that's where, for me maybe maybe saying it's too too on the nose might be the wrong way to do it but that's where i feel like the movie presents it a little too neatly and that's not to say it's bad but that's that's where that idea comes from for me yeah i i would maybe counter that with i, I kind of feel like where the subtlety does come in would be the uh the psychopath charm of how easy it is to kind of fall within that thrall and I mean, Andy Griffith is such a likable guy to begin with, and you can kind of see why early on uh, Marsha becomes so enamored with him. And a, a really early moment in the film when uh, when Lonesome Rhodes gets on the radio and he starts talking bad about uh, Big Jeff Boss, who's a local town sheriff who has aspirations to run for mayor, and he recommends that everyone in the area bring their dogs to him to see if he could actually do a job as a dog catcher, because then he could actually be mayor, potentially. And I thought, like, oh, that's kind of a funny joke. And then when the next scene cuts to about 300 dogs in the guy's front yard, at the moment it's jarring, but I think that's a moment that kind of tricks you subtly into being like, oh, okay, everyone likes this guy, so maybe I should like this guy. Yeah, I was going to say, like, like to Tim's point of 
you don't see the opposition and pushback. I, I agree, although Rhodes is not initially a political person. I mean, he's a media personality, and he's, uh, Doug talked about in our notes up to this, he's likened to Will Rogers several times in the film, and there's some other inspirations for him we'll talk about later. But he's a media personality that slowly morphs into a media and political personality. So it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for there to be a huge uprising um, without cause. But but I will say, while Tim's right that they, you don't see this kind of opposition, what you do see is the people he's hurt in his wake along the way. So Dusty talked about the, the first one you see, there's basically like a, a sheriff that had him in the jail and he gets mad. Uh, so, so he ended up letting Lonesome Rhodes out because Lonesome was willing to be on this radio show initially. And so he gets out of jail early. And, but the sheriff like was mad because he later sees Patricia Neal out for a drink with Lonesome, like while talking about business stuff. Sheriff gets mad because like he got the impression she spurned him and he ends up punching Lonesome Rhodes. And so then Lonesome flips it because he has a, a radio show and he gets everyone to like send dogs to this guy's house and make a mockery of him and essentially probably cost him the mayoral election. Now, as an audience, you're watching that's like, the guy punching out Lonesome in the bar really seemed unprovoked. And he's a fucking sheriff. And he just like flat out decks this dude. So when that the stuff with the dogs happen, you're sort of like, yeah, fuck that guy. Like you're, you're kind of on Lonesome's side. And, and I think there's some other moments where there's some like, you get that. And then later Lonesome is like hawking mattresses for this company. But he kind of is like not liking doing it and kind of sees the kind of like fakeness of it. And I think you as a viewer are like, yeah, a lot of this is kind of bullshit. So you're sort of like on his side to a point. But so you have you have the, the sheriff who gets damaged. You have the mattress company who gets like publicly embarrassed on the air. And they eventually like are getting like angry letters. You get Patricia Neal later in the film has probably the most devastating uh, like series of things that happened to her. And I think there's someone else. Oh, uh, you have, there's an ad executive who uh, Lonesome worked with for months or years. And another guy sort of worms his way in and like is going to get the guy fired. And the guy like has a heart attack in front of Lonesome Roads. And he just doesn't give a shit. He doesn't give a shit. So like, so why you, you aren't seeing like, you know, uh, stakes and torches and people wanting to, you know, uh, like tar and feather him. I think you are seeing the pain that comes in his wake. Yeah. Yeah. Casualties. And I guess I even would have settled for, uh, and, and maybe it just doesn't make good narrative sense. Like even seeing that there are people out there that aren't so enthralled with lonesome, but, sure. but again, it, you know, that also may not have been the movie they were making at that point. And I will say the I, the the I'm glad you brought up the the mattress guy because that was to me that was like an like the perfect example of how like trying to watch this movie in a vacuum I feel like oh that's like going too far in a stretch and like being real unsubtle that all of these people would start burning mattresses because Lonesome told them to but then you remember oh wait Trump has actually done that so. <laughs> So maybe maybe this movie knows more than I do. <laughs> well, and the weird thing with the mattress guy is he's informed, hey, our sales have gone up 50% despite everything that yeah. Lonesome is doing. Maybe don't take right. this personally. 
but he does because he's still an old white man. And, and to be fair, I think, you know, you can't place the death of the ad executive on Lonesome. Guy just needed to take more Vita Jacks. That's on him. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, Dusty walked away from this film very endeared to Lonesome Roads. He thinks he's got some good ideas. Dude, I'm a fighter for Fuller. I, uh, that's the only reason I'm here. <laughs> Side note on that, the Vita Pig mascot was really weird and that I whole was Vita series was amazing. <laughs> I I was so enthralled because at, at, I also started wondering like wow that like what the Vita Pig is a real weird mascot to use and also you already have Lonesome Roads as your spokesman. Why are you why are you also introducing this weird cartoon pig when the... I like to think the pig came before and and they've had the pig all <laughs> okay. along. Yeah, we gotta make the maybe pig sexy. <laughs> Gotta bring the pig in too. And just kind of felt like like Geico, where it's like, okay, Geico, you have Flo and you have the Gecko and you had Caveman. How many fucking mascots do you need? God damn it! Vitajex is a uh, kind of like placebo drink uh, that they are selling. Initially, it's just sort of like a a get up and go and give yourself some pep kind of thing, and it's not selling all that great. And Lonesome Roads comes in. And basically, I mean, it's a 1950s movie, so they they dance around it. But the implication is, no, we're gonna sell it like this will make you want to fuck. And like, like he, the way that scene <laughs> plays out is really interesting because he's like, oh, it's revving my engines, and he's like chasing secretaries around the room. And yep. um, so it's, uh, but what's what's interesting to me about that sequence is, so, so he becomes like he's hawking that on the show, and it's a very common thing in 1950s movies. They would or 1950s TV shows, they would actually be sponsored by, you know, so it'd be the the Colgate Mystery Hour and that kind of shit, where it would be one sponsor would, uh, you know, be on the name of the show, and they would like take a break. Like if you ever, if you're a Twilight Zone fan, if you have like the Blu-ray, for instance. You can look at, they cut it out now in the, when they re-air them on Sci-Fi Channel stuff, but you can look at old clips where actually like at the end of the show, Rod Serling will be like hawking products, like that cool Laramie flavor. Uh, So like that was part of the show at one point and they, you know, they don't do that anymore. So it's, it's very fitting for the time with how they present Vitajex. And but the thing that I think is interesting about it is it makes Lonesome a literal snake oil salesman. Mm-hmm. So you already have yeah. him as the son of a carnival barker, and now he's hawking, you know, a, a fake drink to people. Yeah, it's pretty much gas station speed. <laughs> yeah, it's got caffeine, caffeine, and maybe a little aspirin. I did see something. something in the yeah on the trivia. Um, somebody like there's a breakdown, a pie chart of what's in it. You see in one part of the movie, and if somebody two like percent caffeine. Well, if if someone's something. if someone's like um, like uh, breakdown of it is correct, I I don't I don't know, but but they said something like that. Vitajex it would be like the equivalent of having like a 16 ounce latte, I think was their statement. I was like, okay. (laughs) So to be fair, lattes would have blown people's mind in the (laughs) fifties. Okay. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think those are some good initial uh, opening thoughts. I do want to say we've, we've addressed this a little bit, but there's two things I think that are worth moving on to. And so I'll kind of open this up for both. One is I feel 
this for me this movie works particularly well it's probably one of my favorite movies of this era of the 50s because it feels so modern it it keeps moving it keeps you engaged like there doesn't feel like any scenes where it's like dragging or why do we need this like it just kind of keeps inching up and up and it does what i think a lot of the best older movies do in that it does keep those stakes going it does keep it moving so it feels more modern and some examples that i had you know like casablanca citizen kane it's a wonderful life i'll do that as well that if you watch those movies even though they are old if you think about the structure of them they do not feel old versus like if you are going back and watching i don't know screwball comedies of the 30s a lot of times you're sitting there like this sucks you know, it's like, it's not funny and it's just slow and you just don't care. Whereas like, it's a wonderful life, like keeps that movie going. It keeps the story going. And and this movie very much does it as well. So that's one thing I want to put on the floor if anyone has any comments. And then the other thing I want to throw out there is we definitely need to talk about Andy Griffith in this movie because holy fuck, uh, you know, if all you know Andy Griffith as is uh, Andy Taylor from the Andy Griffith show or Matlock, you will be in quite a big surprise uh, in watching this film because, you know, this was his first film. It was before he was on the Andy Griffith show. So before he was a star. So the persona that we later knew him to be of like a very dad and grandpa figure. And he was very good at that. In this movie, he's playing a very charming guy, very magnetic guy, but you know, a monster and a monster that gets more and more revealed as the film goes on. For me, I think it showcases how good an actor Andy Griffith actually was and that we yeah. don't really like because he got he did probably eight years or something. The Andy Griffith show, he probably did similar run on Matlock. I don't know what he did between those. I'm sure there was, you know, a handful of like movies and stuff. But those are the two big things in pop culture we know him from. But like, God, and I, I did read that uh, he, he was on the state. He was a stage actor as well. So he might have had some good credits before this and after. But damn it, like, he's a force in this movie, and so good. Yeah. I know it's not quite the same, because like you said, this actually kind of predates Andy Griffith's show, but as far as modern audiences go, like you said, we know him as Andy Griffith. Like, that's just who we think of him as. And Dusty, you might appreciate this. Like, it reminds me of David Tennant. Like, watching David Tennant play the Doctor and then Kilgrave on Jessica Jones, where it's you can see where he's bringing a lot of the same personality to the role, but tweaking it just enough to make it monstrous. And it makes you question the char the other character that you love, because it's like, wow, it does not take much to push them over the edge. And I got a similar sense watching Andy Griffith in this role. Like, you can still see good a good bit of the Andy Griffith character in a lot of what he does in this movie, but he changes it in just enough significant ways where it completely subverts it. Yeah, I think that's a really good comparison. Um, honestly, when Lytton sent this to me, I assumed that this was a movie that got filmed during the Andy Griffith show and that, and before I even saw that it was Ely Xan, I was like, oh, this is like someone trying to do a, like a gimmick casting, just, you know, oh, like Dennis Quaid's playing a villain this time. It'll be, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not going to lie. I forget the name of that movie uh, or the, the intruder. It's really great in a bad way. Either way, <laughs> should have won an Oscar. Um, but yeah, it just, it's, 
I just assumed it was going to be this gimmick casting, and within 30 seconds of Andy Griffith, it's he feels almost like a proto version of the Joker at times. Like, it's something that he <laughs> could pull off. Like, he's got the laugh. You heard it here first, folks. Cast Andy Griffith as the Joker. <laughs> I want, Zack Snyder, are you listening? I want a Grandpa Joker. Dark Knight <laughs> Returns. Andy Griffith <laughs> in the Dark Knight Returns. That's what we gotta do. <laughs> But, like, that laugh that he has is so genuine, but so fucking jarring. It's, yeah. He's, it's, it, he, like, he brays. It's like a donkey. Like, it's just yeah. this outburst. Um, but, yeah, I didn't make that connection, but that's very interesting. And, yeah, I, I can see it. Yeah. Yeah, he totally could play, like, an even more sinister villain, I think. Like, I was, I was really impressed. Like, even, like, from the very beginning when they're in the jail, and there's just this little you know something about him that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable but then he's fun loving and and people like him but then there's something you know going on you know behind his eyes right like there's something mm-hmm. malicious it's sinister almost and it, it's it as the movie goes on you get more and more unsettled by what he's done in his personality well there's two things in how they introduce this character that i think are really interesting so she goes to this jail cell and she's you know meeting with the sheriff and she wants to get these guys on the show like i said it's kind of like i i, I don't know it's just uh we're gonna Proto talk npr yeah it's yeah it's kind of like this american life but they had no prep it was just like i don't know we'll just walk in and see who's interesting yeah and well so they give she... the impression that the radio station isn't doing particularly well okay grasping at straws okay yeah i may have missed that i mean it does make sense because they they definitely latch on to roads and you know ride it ride them for always worth so eventually somebody mentions that griffith that lonesome roads has a guitar and so, okay, we'll have him sing a song. So there's two things when they first introduce him. He's asleep, and somebody goes over to wake him up by kicking him in the ribs. And so the first shot of our star is he's on the ground, and he just looks up at the camera with murder in his eyes. Understandably, yeah. but that's the first way we see him, is we don't see him as affable and good-natured that he later presents. We see him as just, like, vicious the very first moment which is really interesting and the other thing is once they pitch him on hey we want you to sing a song on the radio one of his like he has a couple other lines and then his first key line is what do i get out of this i'm saying me Mm -hmm. myself and i and that is like a thesis statement for his character for the entire film yeah i think it's interesting about the uh like the meanness because even the sheriff warns um Marsha she's like oh be careful with this one he's mean or something like mm-hmm. that and then and then he's like just he's dirty he's on the floor and he gives that like mean look and you think oh man what's this guy but then he just turns into this charmer and right out of the gate I'm like is this is this fake like what what's the real one like I can't yeah. tell that's the good tension that the movie sets up just giving you both sides of it in such quick succession so that you know like like Litton said like Looking at looking up with murder in your eyes after someone wakes you by kicking you in the side, like that's a semi-justifiable response. Like if I was sleeping and someone kicked me with a boot on, I'd be pretty pissed off too. So like there's enough ambiguity to what you're seeing in that jail room scene where you, you know, you can choose to go along with the persona for a certain amount of the movie if you want to, because the movie doesn't directly contradict it in that first bit. 
Yeah, there's a couple other key early lines uh, that popped out to me as well. So when he gets all the dogs to the sheriff's house and he's just like the guy comes out of his house in like, a, you know, an undershirt and just like sweating all over his face and just dogs are pouring out. and Everyone in the town is laughing at him. So it's just like it, the impression is this guy's life is at least you know, momentarily ruined. Like he probably is not going to win his, the mayoral election or anything. So like Rhodes is sitting in the car with Patricia O'Neill and just like laughing his head off. And she says, and she's all, she's very much enamored with him. So she's enamored with him as a media personality, as someone who can really work on her show, like work a crowd on her show. And she also clearly is attracted to him. And so she's gets wrapped up in all this. And then her, trajectory you know significantly changes as the movie goes but she asks him how does it feel being able to say anything and sway people um and she says it in just sort of this like oh you old rascal you and he just laughs and says like yeah i guess i can and then he's then he like realizes and he says yeah i guess i can and like he yeah. that's the moment where he gets his first taste of power and it's played so well mm -hmm. Uh, by Griffith, and then then later, when you get the first indication for anyone in the inner circle of the monster he becomes, the show keeps getting bigger and bigger, and eventually he's going to go off. Uh, does he go to New York initially, or is New York later? He goes to New York. Well, no, he goes to Memphis. Okay, Memphis. Memphis first. So, so the radio show goes from that to then Memphis. So they're in a smaller town radio, and then he's going to work out of Memphis. Uh, it was TV still in Memphis, right? Okay. Yeah, Memphis was the first. Yeah, TV. so he because that was where the mattress stopped. Yeah, came. so he gets a he gets a TV deal. So it's like you know you're in a, a small town small town radio station in the state, and then you're going to go to you know a major city on TV in the state. So it's definitely a step up. And he's leaving with her on the train and all these people are like waving and hugging him and saying, you'll see you lonesome and all that kind of stuff. And as he turns away, as he's getting on the train, he says, boy, am I glad to shake that dump. And her face just drops of like, well, wait, wait a second, because, you know, she knows how he presents himself and these man, this man of the people. And then he wins her back by being like, oh, well, you know, I'm just kidding. Um, and again, it's just like a really great moment in the writing and in the performance, but you start to see those cracks and she's starting to see those cracks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the face that he makes when the train, uh, when the train finally passes everyone who lives in a uh, picket, Arkansas, and he's just like kind of hanging out there and his face just goes from super jubilant to just kind of stone. And it's yeah. hard to tell if it's just a sudden dopamine drop that he's now not surrounded by people enamoring him, or if it's him finally relaxing and being able to turn that personality off. Yeah. At, yeah. The moment Dusty's talking about is right after he reassures her quote unquote that, you know, he's, he's just kidding around yeah, he like hangs back out the train car and the the train's moving and all these people are still plotting him and he's back to smiling and grinning and waving. Yeah, and then his face drops. And so it really just kind of seems like the mask is being removed. And it's a really brilliant yep. kind of, you know, it, it, it's something that old movies can do super well when, uh, you know, when the right person is behind it. Yeah, one of the things is like trying to decide or trying to figure out as an audience, like how much of this really is a lie? Is it every single bit? Like, is he 
is he a lie from the very beginning or is he kind of always this charming womanizing guy and now he's starting to incorporate little lies into his manipulation or is it all an act like from the very start i think i think you could look at it all i mean to kind of play into like that joker comparison and everything i think a lot of it and you could even compare it to like someone like trump where i think a lot i don't necessarily know that it was always an act from the beginning but each step along the journey he is making decisions based on what he sees is going to benefit him in the moment so like he he makes the comment about you know I'm glad to shake off that dumper, however he says exactly. And it's only after he sees that it gets a negative reaction from the person he's with at the moment that he doubles back and goes, oh, no, I'm just joking. Like, he's very much a people pleaser in that he is always looking to please the people that are right in front of him and do what needs to be done right in the moment. And it's kind of, it's like, it's a more, you know, jovial version of like the Joker who, you know, famously doesn't have a plan, you know, at least that's how it presents it. He's just going to do whatever looks like the best move at the time and then deal with the consequences as they come. And I, I feel like there, I mean, there's a little bit more planning on, on Lonesome's part because he's trying to create a persona, but I do think a lot of it is based on he is constantly tinkering that persona and constantly adjusting his overall plan based on whatever is being presented in front of him at the moment. Absolutely. And, uh, the, and, uh, oh, sorry, go, go and later, later uh, I'll, I'll pop you in here in a second, Dusty. And later, uh, kind of once the mask is fully pulled off uh, to Patricia Neal's character. Um, he he has a comment where he said, he's talking about his public. He's talking about his viewers. And he says, they're mine. They think like I do. Though they're even stupider than I am, so I gotta think for them. And that's, you know, you see that implicitly through so much of his actions up to that point. But then he just nakedly puts that out there to her because he confides in her and he essentially trusts her and and that has some repercussions later dusty yeah th this might fall under a bad grad school paper topic but i think with him as a as a drifter and as a dude who's kind of like a, a, a low-rent grifter that he's so constantly in survival mode that he's just constantly doing that with each new situation he's in yeah. and i kind of feel like the shift that happens is when he realizes that the grift that he's used in small versions works just as well in big versions as well yeah huh. yeah I, I i think that's definitely on point yeah. um before we move on some other stuff uh, a couple things i want to throw out there that kind of relate to griffith's performance that i thought were interesting when i was uh looking up some trivia so Andy Griffith, uh, from like the director or the writer, someone was saying that, you know, in his actual life, like he was, uh, was actually a, a really nice guy and just kind of wanted to be everybody's friend. So it was difficult for him to, I mean, he did a great job, but it was difficult for him to get worked up in the, the meanness of Lonesome Roads. And, uh, I guess, you know, when he would do stage shows where he had to get a lot of energy going, you know, he would slowly build that up. But for this role, you know, there's scenes where he has to be really forceful or angry or violent really suddenly in a scene. So apparently he asked during some scenes leading up to it 
for like chairs to be on set that he could destroy and so he would just like smash them and shit to get in the right like hostility which is just so crazy to me thinking of just andy griffith just just breaking chairs uh <laughs> on the backstage of a set and then it's like i'm ready guys i'm going in um so that was interesting to me and then the other stuff was um so kazan and schulberg apparently interviewed senator lbj he was senator at that time and they studied how he walked, talked, and presented himself in both public and private. So that's interesting for um, how they approach Rhodes to some degree. And also I read that uh, Rhodes was inspired by a combination of Arthur Godfrey, who's someone I'm not really familiar with, but he was a media personality and he had some scandals it looked like. Uh, Huey Long, who um, Dusty definitely has some stuff to talk about coming up. He was a kind of populist politician mm -hmm. of the 30s who also inspired his own face in the crowd type movie called uh, All the King's Men. And uh, Will Rogers is mentioned throughout the film, although I don't think Will Rogers was ever like evil, but a similar type of uh, man of the people, unless Dusty knows some secret history, I don't know. <laughs> and then apparently uh, Billy Graham was also one of the inspirations for Rhodes. That makes so, sense. Uh, so all those things. And then the only other uh, thing, since we're talking about uh, Griffith as an actor, is apparently uh, Marlon Brando turned the role down. Hmm. Probably for the best. I'm trying to, like, because now I'm trying to picture Marlon Brando pulling off, you know, the various scenes in this movie. And I, the closest I can come is just him constantly yelling Stella. Like that's that's all I'm yeah. able to imagine. Marlon Brando wasn't a good he actor, or anything. <laughs> Look, Lonesome Kowalski would have worked just as well. <laughs> I, I do think casting Griffith, though, in retrospect, uh, you know, even though Brando could have done a fine job, because we associate Griffith with Andy Griffith or Andy Taylor um, and Matlock, for a modern audience, I think it does the movie better justice because. We think of him as like, oh, yeah, you know, Andy Griffith, you know, nice old Andy Griffith. And we're going to watch a show about where he's on the radio and stuff. Cool. And then so if you didn't know anything about this movie and you just came across on Turner Classic Movies, and you would just like slowly come to the realization of, well, he's a bad guy in this. So I like but yeah. back in 57, yeah. nobody knew who he was at all. But now you have this preconceived notion of, oh, Andy Griffith, he always plays like nice dudes. And so the movie wants to present him as a guy who has this false, nice face. And then it's reveal pulling back layers. So I think uh, having that connection in our heads of the way we think of him, you know, helps the film in a modern context. I do think it makes the casting of him for the Andy Griffith show much weirder in retrospect. Because it means someone had to, like, someone looked at him and faced the crowd and went, someone watched that's this, the yeah. guy we want to be the wholesome father. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the reverse. <laughs> it's kind of like the reverse of Brian Cranston started with Breaking Bad and they're like, all right, I have this goofy family comedy. <laughs> all right, Walter White, but, you know, he's he's got kids he can't control. Go. <laughs> Is he on drugs? No drugs this time. Oh, no, he is high on life. <laughs> We're still going to get him in his underwear, though. Lucky guys get the people what they want. <laughs> All right, so um, 
yeah the the only other thing uh i'll mention uh, on the acting is i i, I do feel uh, well lee, lee remick is good in this she plays like uh a little like sex pot kind of character that rhodes ends up marrying after that's the miss the miss whatever winner correct? yeah she's like the baton twirler the and she's like a high schooler and he yeah. ends up marrying her in uh in mexico after he had essentially proposed to Patricia's Neal's character. So that's one of the many betrayals that he lays at her feet. So Lee Remick, who I've liked in a lot of movies, she was in The Omen, Anatomy of a Murder, Experiment in Terror, and a lot of others. So this is her first role, and I think she does a good job. Uh, Walter, on Walter, him. Or just, on him. Oh, yeah, oh, I, I just want to note some things on the cast, and then we can talk some specific. Walter Matthau has kind of a small part, um, but plays a, a, a solid dramatic role here. And But I do, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Patricia Neal, who is not an actress I'm super familiar with. She was in Breakfast at Tiffany's in, I think, a supporting role. She was in Day the Earth Stood Still. And if you look at her filmography, she had kind of like a limited window of uh, movies and TV shows that she was on. But on a rewatch, she is fantastic in this. Like, She's Andy really Griffith is obviously the draw, and you're watching the horror unfold with him but re-watching and thinking about her role like she has to be his straight man you know she has to be it's a two-hander in this and that her her trajectory goes along with his in just a very different way and she starts all like big bright eyes and smiles and hopeful and like she sells the hell out of it in yeah. the early parts of the movie and then she starts to get like kind of more bitter and hardened based on everything that's happening to her and by the end she is just a wrecked woman by everything he's put her through and she does a fantastic performance throughout it so i, I just oh, want to yeah, note that uh so we don't skip over it and they did a good job with like her like wardrobe too like trying to show that like her darker clothes toward the end brighter clothes toward the beginning like okay i didn't notice that but things that makes like sense. her posture yeah. like she's and her movement speed you know at the beginning and then at the end this slow and and they're and they're lighting yeah. her differently and that sort of thing it was kind of cool well, she's the I, I would argue that she's the only one that actually has an arc in the yeah. movie because lonesome is basically just riding this wave up to the top but he's essentially doing what he's always done there's no actual real growth or change in his mentality he's just put in, he's just given a larger and larger platform to do essentially what he's always done he's um, evil he's evil Marcia jack Patric sparrow to her will turner yes. and elizabeth swan <laughs> Sure. Yes, but yeah, she she's she's the the character that we get to see actually go through a very specific change, and Patrice O'Neill showcases that throughout the movie, as you were saying. Yeah, she's good. Um, but I do. You you mentioned the the high schooler that he essentially marries, and that was the point where because you mentioned this feels like a very modern movie. That was the point in the movie where I like stopped and went. Oh yeah, this is the 1950s because today if someone in that like some media personality married a high school girl, that would be a scandal in and of itself that would have sure. almost certainly derailed them like although Jerry Seinfeld dated a 17-year-old when he was like 38. <laughs> True. 
Yeah, well, and I think we do we do need to make that a point. Is he's not just marrying a, like a, I'm 18, but I'm a senior. This is like a pointedly yeah. 17 year old girl. And and as far as sure as far as Jerry Seinfeld goes, he gets so much shit for it now. Like it, it didn't happen at the time in like the 90s, but he is rightfully viewed as, hey, that's kind of fucked up now. I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I don't think the movie is presenting it in, in its era. I don't think it's presenting it as what he's doing is illegal, though, because in different states, the age of oh, consent no. can be, you can be like 16 or 17 to get married and you get all that stuff that's like parental consent and stuff. So I, I don't think the movie's trying to say that he illegally married oh, no. her. But yeah, obvious, obviously, you know, you're not, even back then, you weren't supposed to look at it and think like, yeah, this is okay. But I think, I, the fact that the, the fact that the movie doesn't really address it at all. Like I think that goes, but I, I think it. I think I think it does though. I I think they I think they address it as you're supposed to get the impression the age gap should not be happening because like when he's staring at her sexually, you have like some fifty year old like town person yep. like oh and she's just seventeen or like like the the idea was I got the impression that like you're supposed to get the idea that. Rhodes is breaking kind of a boundary that he should not be. So I don't think the movie's endorsing I don't, it. I don't think the movie, I, I, it's not that the movie's endorsing it, but the movie also doesn't offer any repercussions for the action. He's able to do it and nothing happens. Like the movie, the sure. movie might be suggesting that you as the audience should not be on board, but within the world of the movie, which I think does to an extent reflect the reality of the time, the fact that he was marrying this high school girl is essentially seen as, oh, whatever. Yeah. Well, I think it's not just the time. I think it's part of, like, the the idea that his character does things that are progressively and progressively worse and worse, and, like, it's somehow okay. Like, it's okay to do small errors in the beginning, or small moral wrongs in the beginning, and then the goes, movie goes on, and now the things are worse, and now he's he's continuing to do things, and the, and his adoring crowd is just like, oh, yeah, he's doing this now. Could, Sounds I great. I mean, we did have how many people still voted for Roy Moore after all of that stuff, so <laughs> who knows? Well, and a lot of the film Not takes wrong. place in the South. So, yeah. you know, and, and you you do have, there were were then and still are a lot of marriages that people are quite young and there are age differences and like 60 years ago, even more so. So it wasn't as uncommon. But yeah, that, uh, that, okay. that was the thing. Like, it, like, if you were to make a movie today where a character married a high schooler like that, like the movie would need to offer some type of consequence within the sure. film itself where they didn't need to do that in 57. Yeah. If nothing else, I would say in a modern context, even if you didn't see a political backlash or social backlash, Patricia's ne Patricia Neal's character would likely comment on it because mm -hmm. in here, she's just bothered by the fact that he, you know, broke off their engagement essentially and married someone else. And I'm sure she's bothered by the fact that he's going after someone so much younger than her, but she never outright says anything like, you know, what you're doing is wrong or anything like that. So I, yeah, I think in a modern film, that would be a huge blow up argument if mm -hmm. nothing else, if yeah. you didn't see any other. Okay. So uh, we've touched on a lot of aspects of the movie and I'll say, you know, plot wise, we've, we've covered a good bit of it. Um, he, he becomes a media personality and then at some point he starts working for a company that has like the ceo of the company they refer to as the general and the general sees uh lonesome's opportunity uh, possibility 
for political sway and starts to bring him in with a lot of political operatives and Lonesome starts to basically give notes to a very dry, uh, boring senator that these Republican, right? I mean, it's, it, they're certainly Republicans based on some of the policies that get put out there, mm-hmm. but they want to uh, run and win the presidency. So Lonesome is telling him like, well, here's how you sell yourself to the people. Here's how you work on TV. And there's even like a really chilling line when the general is pitching Lonesome on getting into politics that the mass has to be guided with a strong hand by a responsible elite. And that's pretty overt. Yeah. Um, but so they uh, so they yeah. get lonesome to that he's you know he goes from just being a media guy to now having some political sway, and he Almost doesn't actually run maker. for. Yeah, he's a kingmaker. He doesn't actually run for office himself. Although by the end of the film, he, there's implications that he might end up becoming part of a the White House cabinet, um, and he sorts sort of starts talking like the way he's just, he describes some position almost like he would be like the Joseph Goebbels of uh, of this administration as a sort yeah, of the, the secretary of national morale. Yeah. As this like media personality. So, so he's getting more and more involved in politics and then eventually there is a downfall. And I think we'll, we'll, we're going to dive heavy into politics here and the, the politics of then and the politics of now, but uh, just to give everyone a little bit of context. So he, he's heavy into political aspects um patricia neal's character and walter Matthau are more and more disturbed by everything that's going on particularly as he gets involved in politics and she eventually is just kind of so broken and shattered and once he reveals that everybody's in his hand and he's in like he's got senators and congressmen in his pocket they're gonna all come over for this dinner and she recognizes like this could be the thing that catapults him to becoming an even greater monster. And so she takes it upon herself during one of his shows. He's like when he's on camera, but quiet. It's the like, credits when the and, credits, and, are and the credits are rolling. He's got this big smile, but he's like basically saying everybody's a bunch of like dumbass country bumpkins and stuff. So she alters the, alters the audio turns the uh, mic back on yes yeah, turns the mic back on so that it gets broadcast to the world and people are horrified and there creates a backlash and all of his political cronies you know leave him out in the lurch and before we dive into the politics of it um tim you had some some comments i i feel on the ending that i think you wanted to address and i wanted to say some stuff as well and then oh, we can about, then we can jump how... into politics is specific specifically go ahead about how neat i thought the ending was is that yeah yeah so and and you did offer some some counterpoints to it and i think that's where you mentioned bill o'reilly and glenn beck and i feel the reason i think it's neat is and when to be clear when you say neat you don't mean like keen you mean right i mean like a a really like a hollywood ending (laughs) everything wraps up perfectly kind of thing um because like Linton said, he's essentially shit-talking his audience uh, as these credits are rolling. Uh, Marsha goes in, switches up the audio, so now all of the terrible things he's saying about his base are being broadcast directly to them, and there is this swift backlash where immediately they are like people are writing in and calling into the station 
and like you know they're never gonna watch him again basically like his his showbiz at least for the moment is completely torpedoed everyone turns against him and lots of tweets I... lots of angry tweets happening right and the reason the reason <laughs> i say it's neat is i mean i i can i could the the speed in which it happens is one thing because this is a movie we you know we can't stop the movie to allow a week to play out for all this backlash to catch up so i get that it might be happening faster than normal that's fine but just the idea that that's all it, you know we've and this is where if you had if the movie had shown more of an opposing viewpoint to his popularity maybe this would make more sense but the way the movie presents it he just has this adoring fan base that listens to everything he says and it just takes this one broadcast for all of them to turn against him i mean even when you have situations like bill o'reilly or glenn bleck where they do eventually implode it's not a one-time thing that causes it. Yeah, I wish like it the was. Fact that, yeah, it would be great if it <laughs> was. Be really nice. Well, but that—that that was especially. Go, go ahead. Like, it, especially when it comes, and this might be something we talk more about when we get into the politi- political aspect of it. But especially on the right, there is so much more leeway given to right, you know, Republican, conservative, right-wing figures, especially in media, where they can. They can say those things and it's usually shrugged off again just like being off the cuff or you know they're it was not just they're a not joke or... just a joke or they're not going to succumb to it was just locker room talk. norms yeah. locker room talk it is. you know i mean if we want to bring it back to trump we've seen trump say all manner of terrible things some of which were live <laughs> on television and it has done nothing it doesn't matter yeah. so <laughs> So, and again, maybe back then it would have been one thing, but watching it now, it feels like, oh yeah, this is a really feel-good ending that shouldn't actually I, happen. I, 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 I just want to counter, but I, I, Dusty, you you were up next. I, I have two things to say on that. One is a, a point that I didn't think about, but in regards to what you were saying about like Republicans in modern context, if, uh, if, if they do something that's questionable and their base would still support them, I would say it, it, it operates a little differently because Lonesome is not specifically a political person in this. He has been a media figure that has slowly on, on the backstage back on the, on the back on what we're seeing, he's become more and more political, but for someone who's watching his show, he's still just good old Lonesome Rose with his country show. And then he just brings the Senator on and is like personalizing him. But I think to a viewing audience, they would not see him as, overtly political so you would have like republicans and democrats watching that show um and that he's just bringing on a senator that he likes and you know thinks to do a good job like that's the first time we see him being overtly political to his audience and that happened just like days before i think unless i'm missing some something but so so that's one aspect so his entire audience who views him as more of like a Roy Rogers, uh, or, or Will, Will uh, Roy, yeah, Roy Rogers, Will Rogers, Will Rogers, uh, Will yeah, Rogers. a Will Rogers figure, um, that, you know, they, they wouldn't necessarily be his base for political reasons. They'd be his base for like media personality reasons. But the other thing, I, I guess when you said that you thought it was neat, I don't think, I think the movie's actually pretty fucking cynical in the end because he's defeated but the movie overtly tells us through walter Matthau's character that he's not really defeated like Matthau 
Mathal gets a moment where he gets to kind of triumph over Rhodes. He tells him, because Mathal's been in radio, he's been in media, he's presumably seen these kind of things before. And Rhodes is saying, well, I'm going to be back. You're not, you know, you're not keeping me off the air. And Mathal says, you know, oh, you'll be back. Yeah, there'll be a little bit of a cooling off period, you know, but they'll they'll bring you back. They'll think, oh, you know, I think it's about time we uh, give him another show and it's not going to be the biggest show, might not be the 10th biggest show, might not be the 30th biggest show, but you'll get a show. And then eventually people will be, well, whatever happened to that Lonesome Roads guy or that, that guy, what was his name years ago? So basically mm -hmm. the movie presents it as Rhodes has lost a battle but he's not going to be removed from the media. He's not going to be ostracized that, that Walter Matthau's character is cynical enough to know you will be back. I know you will be back. You will still get paid. You will still be successful. And I, I feel like the victory is Pyrrhic that, that they win, but even he recognizes this is temporary and, and that's why I, I made the connection to Glenn Peck and Bill O'Reilly, because they both had scandals. Uh, I mean, Bill O'Reilly was like the sex scandal. And what got Glenn Beck off the air? Just being a fucking nutcase. What was it? I don't even remember. I think it, I, I think it was like various. See, that's a perfect example. Like the, the movie kind of talks about, like it says, like people have a short memory. I don't remember what got Glenn Beck. But, but my point is both Bill O'Reilly and Glenn Beck then ultimately did get shows of some kind. They aren't on the platform they once were, but they still have some influence. They still sell books. They still probably get millions of dollars a year, you know, might be 2 million a year instead of 25. But so I, I feel that the movie ends, I would say not neat. I would say it's, it's incredibly cynical. Dusty, you had something? Yeah, I, I was pretty much going to say that. I think the movie ends very honestly and very accurately. It's, it's really tough to compare. I was trying to think of an analog for Lonesome Roads that we have as of exactly right now, and I was having a really hard time with it. But especially comparing him to someone like Donald Trump, Donald Trump has a very unique sort of cult personality that you maybe get in one person every few decades. While, you know, Lonesome Roads is very much like that Bill O'Reilly, Glenn Beck, Alex Jones type of person. And yeah, I think it is incredibly accurate that you can lose your high ground. And I'm sure Walter Matthau's character probably felt a deep sense of satisfaction of just being like, yeah, you'll be back, but you'll never be happy. And your life is going to feel like a sham from here on out. But that also goes to say that, you know, Alex Jones and Bill O'Reilly and Glenn Beck, they're making a decent amount of money just running things on their own. They don't have to have other people now to be able to make their money. That's... Yeah, and Alex Jones is a good example too. I know you'd mentioned him before, but also the fact that he got deplatformed, but he isn't gone. You know, yeah, he's, he's still, still got about a million listeners think, on a regular basis. I think the big difference, though, and I, I will, I will admit the the point you made about Lonesome is not an explicitly political figure as far as his audience is concerned. That is a fair point, and that's not something I really thought about. But in all the other example, like with Bill O'Reilly, Glenn Beck, and stuff like that, they lost their shows not because their base turned against them. They lost their shows because of extenuate... Like, Bill O'Reilly, the the sexual assault thing was, was too much bad PR, so the advertisers were leaving. Similar thing happened with Glenn Beck. I don't remember exactly what he said, but there were a number... I think there were a number of 
racist statements that he was making about the Obamas, and there was a prolonged boycott effort by people to get him off the air that eventually succeeded. Um, and like Alex Jones being plat uh, deplatformed, he was deplatformed, but the call from the, the platform were by critics, not by his actual audience base. And that's why, like, the, the when I was talking about at the beginning, how we never see any actual opposition to Rhodes as a popular figure, we, uh, we just know that he's very popular. I feel like that's where, it, watching it with modern eyes, you know, now, it, it, it feels a little bit off because... As far as we know, everyone just loved this person, and overnight his audience just turns against him. And we, even even in the real-life examples, it usually isn't just the audience turning against them that causes them to lose their show. There's usually oppositional forces that already existed that seize on it to try yeah. to, to benefit off of that. Yeah, to that point, like I think that in the United States of America, either back then or today people cling to these type of people and are slow to abandon them and i think that in the movie tim you're kind of right that doesn't happen they, you don't you, they don't abandon uh, just based on uh, you know one instant one instance or something like that um and like we said before you know we kind of wish that they would we kind of wish that people would realize that the person that they're following whether they're media or pol political or whatever is a terrible person and have done terrible things and then they're like okay see you later and they lose their support but to your point it doesn't happen i just well, like i said i i don't think we're supposed to think they are leaving him forever it's if if this were to play out past the point of where the film ends lonesome would go on tv and like oh i was real sorry about what i said i mean he even says like how he'll play it to everyone that that he was testing them he just wanted to see who who actually like yeah. would think he'd say something like that. So I, I just think we're seeing it before the the next media cycle of you know if this were reality it would be when Laura Ingram goes back out two weeks later and you know makes her apology for whatever heinous thing she particularly said yeah. that week. Um, so anyway, um, Dusty, did you have something? Okay. Uh, so yeah, we, we've danced around it a bit. So let's just dive deep into the politics of it. Um, I, I do think there's some interesting things to say. I know Dusty and Doug have some uh, points of reference for us as our resident historians. But yeah, let's talk about this in regards to both Trump and in kind of the era it came out where I know that uh, like Huey Long is, like I said, an influence on this and his role uh, in American politics, I think, makes sense with this film. Let's talk about that guy first. I think it's a good place to start. Yeah, Louis great. Louisiana governor, um, you know, cult of personality, became essentially... Uh, Bigger than life, yeah. real, real glad-handed kind really of guy. And really could do whatever he wanted, I mean, r really without any sort of consequence. Yeah, but you could definitely note that he ran the, uh, when he was governor of Louisiana, he essentially ran it as its own independent nation for a number of years. Hmm. Um, he um, he got a bunch of criminals to essentially tear down the old uh, governor's mansion because he didn't like it enough to force the state to build a new mansion just for him that looked like the White House. Because he was planning on running for president, and it, it's apocryphal. It, this may or may not have happened, but it seems, sounds like something he would have said, that he wanted to get used to living in the White House before he moved to D.C., <laughs> um, but he, he was also assassinated. And then he was killed. Yeah, yeah. Who, yeah. Uh, well, 
Well, yeah. And and the, still... the circumstances of that are like really hazy of what actually happened. Yeah, it, it's kind of it's kind of screwy. But the the thing with Huey Long is, yeah, he did a lot of very shitty things, but he was also very feared to essentially become a liberal dictator. He had a a, prob- a program called Share Our Wealth that was getting really big at the time during the Great Depression, and it's something that would have guaranteed a maximum income, uh, what we would know today as a universal basic income, free college and free job training anywhere you wanted. Uh, Sounds see, good. What else? Yeah, yeah, like like. Like, can I vote for Huey Long? Wait a second. Yeah. And, oh, uh, there would be an old age pension for anyone over the age of 60. Veterans would get guaranteed medical care no matter what. And, and just, all of this. Is this, is this before Social Security? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Social Security. I just wanted to make sure I was. 40s. Okay, cool. Yeah. And so, um, and he would pay for this essentially by taking all of the money from people who had amassed fortunes that were uh, 300 times the average family fortune at the time. And so a lot of people really loved it. And these were bold, bold stances to take. And But like you said, Linton, dude was assassinated. From, from what I can tell, or at least the story that is most fun to me, is uh, when he was senator of Louisiana, he was redistricting the, uh, the judicial districts because there was a judge that he hated, and he's the fucking kingfish, so he's going to get rid of the guy. Um, redistricts it, knocks the judge out of his job. So the judge's son-in-law uh, gets a gun, shoots Howie Long once in the stomach, and his bodyguards shoot the assassin 61 times. Yeah. I actually watched, uh, I, I watched through a number of Unsolved Mysteries in the last couple months during the pandemic, because what else am I going to do? So I watched a lot of like old uh, box set collections. And so I, I had vaguely known of Huey Long, but that I didn't know much on his, uh, or known, known about Huey Long, but I didn't know anything on his assassination. So I watched that and then I was reading some things so from what I've gathered, and this is not like gospel truth of it's known that this happened, but one of the beliefs based on some of the evidence that was found then and has been kind of unearthed in the decades since is this guy approaches Huey Long. It's questionable whether he had a gun or not. Some people say he just punched him and that Huey Long's bodyguards reacted to the punch and that he later had a gun planted on him because there's questions of whether or not he even had a gun or owned a gun or anything like that. But regardless, there are people who believe that whether the, the guy had a gun or simply, or merely punched Huey Long, that Long actually was killed accidentally by his bodyguards because they did fire dozens of times on this guy for whatever happened. And the belief is that Long, was, or by some, is that Long was hit uh, once or twice by some of those bullets and that they they like did some surgery on him but i think it was sort of botched so that may have led to him actually dying so and and then the bodyguards sort of covered up um what had happened so again this is not like this is for sure but there's some belief that his death was actually the result of an accident and not a full-on assassination yeah but yeah, so it's um he's just an odd guy, and afterwards a um a, a small triumvirate tried to keep his program moving with aspirations of running for president, including uh, the guy who was the father of Social Security, Francis Townsend, a um an anti-Semitic Catholic priest by the name of Father Charles Coughlin, who had one of the most popular radio shows in the country at the time, and an even bigger anti-Semite and racist. Uh, by the name of Gerald L.K. Smith, who joined the Silver Shirts 
which was the American version of the Nazi brown shirts, became a full-on Nazi and eventually founded a uh, evangelical Christian theme park in Arkansas. Um, so Wait, here's the not the Creation Museum. No, not the Creation <laughs> no, Museum. That's Kentucky. Yeah. Oh, the Great okay. Oh, Kentucky, yeah. that's right. Yeah, in Arkansas, it's the, uh, the Great Passion Play, where they do outdoor theater and there's a recreation of Jerusalem. Oh, it's, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's okay. yeah, founded by a, a racist Nazi anti-Semite. That um, sounds about right. Oh, man, yeah. I shouldn't have gone there, you guys. <laughs> so, Doug had yeah. his wedding there. You didn't know. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so after Huey Long died, his it was left in very poor hands and the Share of the Wealth program, Share Our Wealth program fell completely apart. Um, but the thing that makes me wonder with this movie is why make it then? Because I'm not, and Doug, definitely correct me on this, but I don't know of any really big populist movements that were going on in the late 50s. Really? Like, you're kind right. of McCarthy, but before and really. after, like years before and years after when we see those type of things, but not really during that time period. Yeah. So it's, it's a, I don't know if it's still riding off that residual Huey Long fear because I mean, Huey Long was the inspiration for It Can't Happen Here and various other sorts of dire warning pieces of art, but I, I really don't Or maybe know. the film is meant to focus more on like the, 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 the capitalist corporate control that was happening during that time period. Maybe that yeah. was – because there was certainly more of that during that I'd also that say period. it can be – uh, you know, one of the notes I had, you know, in relation to like Trump and where this movie falls in the 50s and in the future is that thinking about it for this podcast, uh, you know, walking away from it is that, you know, demagogues are always going to find some kind of media to manipulate to their purposes, whether it's the printing press or radio or TV or, as I put in our notes, space TV in the future, 200 years from now. <laughs> and, you know, the Internet, obviously, in the era of Trump and before, but especially in the era of Trump. So I would argue that you know, this might not be mirroring any particular movement of the 50s, but what it probably was doing was seeing how like Huey Long or Hitler or other people who utilize radio particularly well in outreach to the masses, seeing how TV, which was still very new, I mean, early 50s, like TV, I think by the late 40s is available but most people don't actually have a TV set until like the early to mid fifties. So this movie comes out in 57 TV for the general public. They've probably had it for five years or less. So really I would say it serves as more of a warning of this is what people can and will do with this device in the same way that someone could have made something about like the internet in say 2002 or something. Yeah. So, yeah, so I'd say sense. it's more of a warning than a reflection of a political yeah. movement because it's i didn't think much i mean obviously he has popular appeal but i never read much into like a populism aspect in this movie because i mean partly because lonesome is not an actual political figure but even what you guys were telling us about like with louisiana like he may have been a demagogue but he was also still actually offering things to the populace like he had those programs and i think all, our, our reaction here was like oh those sound really nice like they're good programs they help a lot of people he may have been an awful person but you know there's that's where that populism come from he is giving the population something that they want 
Lonesome isn't doing that. Not really. I mean, he's giving them entertainment, but he has no intention of actually offering anything to his audience. He, it's basically just he is using them to amass his own power. So it's, it feels more like, you know, like the just general demagogue. And it feels more like a warning about how media is used in that regard. And I mean, that was, and to me, that was, that's the thing that I like the most about this movie. Like, you know, cause Linton knew we would end up talking about Trump in some regard, talk, discussing this movie. And I have seen a lot of think pieces, you know, before about how a face in the crowd predicted Trump. Um, I've seen a number of those think pieces over the, you know, since his presidency and candidacy. And the way I put it is, I think that gives the movie both too much and too little credit. Because I remember before this, I remember seeing think pieces that a face in the crowd predicted Sarah Palin. And I think you could mm. make a similar argument for Ronald Reagan. Yep. And I think what the movie does really well, what it picked up on very smartly is there is a need for certain political figures. And, you know, you could say this is my bias showing, but I think like on the right, there is a need to act a certain part. And the movie doesn't go like doesn't name Lonesome as a Republican or the senator that he's helping as a Republican, but it does go out of its way to have us listen to them discussing political talking points. And it's very clear they are right-wing talking points. They're talking about, you know, Social Security is too much, getting rid of the welfare state, like very clearly right-leaning policy proposals. And so I think because the movie is kind of taking more of that general tact where, you know, these are policies that don't help a lot of people, so you need to act you need to present yourself a certain way to this particular segment of Americana to get them to follow you because it's because it's tackling more of that kind of universal truth. It lends itself easily to where you can take any number of right wing pundits or rising conservative rising stars and connect them to this movie because this movie is basically saying these type of people need to play, like they need to cosplay as this, you know, true American, rural, rough and tumble, plain spoken person in order to sell their policies because the policies on their own are not gonna garner any kind of support. Yeah, a lot of it has to do, I'd say with like branding, like as you were talking about it, mm -hmm. it was making me think of like right to work like how that gets used as a Republican talking point for essentially dismantle unions. And regardless of where you fall yeah. politically on whether you think unions are a good idea or not, or that, you know, regulation or deregulation is the way to go. Right to work is just on its face, just an absolute lie. It's, it's a branding term. Like they are not outright saying we need to support corporations or we need to support, um, you know, businesses that would at least be honest but what they what they way it gets presented is well you, you need the right to work you know it's so it's, it's it's presented in a way to appeal to a worker that i would say in most mm -hmm. if you look at the actual policies you would think well wait this actually in most cases will not actually benefit that worker again you may fall differently on the spectrum but i think most people would be able to look at right to work and see Oh, that's just that's just salesmanship. That's just a selling point. Yep. And the right does that a lot. The left does it to some degree too, I'm sure. 
but that's the one that popped to mind. Yeah, I, th- I think it's also important to note, too, that trying to predict what political party Lonesome is working for is kind of difficult at this particular time. It's right about the time of the Southern strategy where uh, the Republicans and Democrats uh, flipped platforms. Mm-hmm. And even up until the the late 80s, early 90s, you could not be a Republican and win, say, in Louisiana. It was just it was pure Democrat politics. Uh, the old school, where, where is super the conservative. From? Um, I don't know because yeah, he's running. He wants to run. I, for I, president. I kinda, yeah. Well, I th- and I think they intentionally don't give us a lot of information on that yeah. senator. Yeah. Because it, it wants the audience to kind of fill in some blanks of their own. Yeah. And there's simply arguments you can make for either side that he's like um, a northern Republican trying to appeal to southern Democrats. But yeah, it's there, there's enough vagueness in there that I think you can kind of just go with wherever you want. All right. So any specifics we want to address in regards to this movie and Trump? Talked a bit here and there, but anything else people want to dive into? The thing that I think is the most directly like Trump, because I think compared to other people that you can compare Lonesome to, I think Trump actually is has a weaker connection because for as much as he tries to talk to that segment of America, he has never attempted to present himself as one of them. He's always presented himself and viewed himself as apart from his base. Um, where I think, you know, someone like Sarah Palin, who is like presenting like a folksy persona, I think that's a stronger comparison to make. But where I do think there is a lot of Trump in Lonesome is... And I I talked about like my issues with how neat the ending is, but I do want to say like the ending is great from a story perspective, like as the capper of this tragedy for Lonesome Roads, it's great. I love how when everything has fallen apart at the end and the senators have abandoned him and Marsha and Mel go up to his penthouse, he's standing there playing the, um, the applause machine to himself as he's giving a speech to no one. Yep. Well, well, almost no one. There's, there's another thing I would get at. So he's, he is so desperate for the approval and love of you know this audience, this base, that he is willing to just talk to this machine that is giving him that, that temporary dopamine fix. Um, and the other thing that I really liked was we don't see a lot of, um, of other like minority groups in this movie. Except for at the end, his wait staff—it's—it's a blunt—it's uh, yeah. black men who are essentially the wait staff, and I don't necessarily know if this was intentional or not on the movie's part. I say probably not, especially for the time period. But as he's giving the speech to himself and playing the applause—the applause machine—there are shots where you can see the wait staff like giving each other looks, like "God, this this guy's fucking crazy!" Like they're like more so than all of the other people we've seen in the movie like who are almost all predominantly white people who are eating this up the few black people we see in this movie are like immediately like this is this is crazy like this guy is nuts and i think that does kind of track with you know you were guy you guys were bringing up like populism stuff historically uh, black communities have been very wary of populist movements because historically populist movements throw yeah. them under the bus. And so I like 
again, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but with that, my, like, knowing that history, watching that scene play out, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, of course they would fucking see through all of this. Well, Rhodes also, yeah. at the end, I mean, he's he's become as much a monster as he possibly, I mean, not possibly, but but he's been, he's got reached height of his monsterdom, his monstrosity uh, by the end, and Patricia Neal has seen it, and that's why she just uh, makes an attempt to kill his political and media career but we we just kind of keep pulling back layers and layers and seeing him worse and worse but yeah when he's talking to his black servants and i do think that that's probably intentional from kazan's point of view i mean there obviously were many black people in uh, in my opinion there were definitely many people like in uh those kind of servant roles in society who were black but i don't think it's an accident that Kazan has this Southern guy who rose to the top and then he's surrounded by a black wait staff like that to me. And it's like one of the only, like you see like one black actor, I think who's also like a a servant in, in a previous scene or something. But I, I I think it's particularly overt, but you get that moment where he's talking to them and he makes an explicitly racist comment and and it's the first time anything like that has mm-hmm. happened in the movie. He's done all kinds of other horrible things, but while screaming at them, he he you know he yells something pretty racist. And so I, I think that's all you know. Even keeping in context the time period of when this was made, and lots of media had racist comments. I think it was being used, particularly because of the monster that Rhodes is and has been becoming. I think Kazan uses it, you know, in a moment of like he's at the height of his powers as a monster. And so now he just like casually throws out a racist comment. Dusty, do you have something? The uh, the only other person of color in the movie that I remember before the end uh, is the woman who had lost her home that he's essentially using as a prop to build up his charismatic side and raising money for. Her. Yeah, there, there's yeah, I forgot. There's there's her. Yeah, he uses her, and we do cut to a black family who's like surprised that they have uh, somebody black on TV. And then the, so the movie comments on that, but yeah, there's another servant character, I think in the ad agency or something. There's a dude in the jail at the okay. beginning, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I, I do love that ending and just how desperate he is for that audulation and how, how that all plays together. So when he's screaming, don't leave me like to me, that is like the clearest parallel to Trump. Mm-hmm. Like it, Trump needs that attention or he will wither and die. And I think that's where the connection to Lonesome is strongest. All right. Uh, any uh, any other things we want to put out there before we wrap up, boys? Do you guys see at the, uh, at the very end after everything and he's like still screaming <clears throat> and like the, the end comes on the screen and there's a giant Coca-Cola sign just oh, right I did, behind I did it, not like filling that. up the entire screen <laughs> yeah, as it the end right like it's like so that to me is kind of showing like (laughs) you know it's that corporate it's that capitalism manipulating the media type i'm sure coke appreciated that i didn't pick up on that (laughs) uh okay anything else all right so uh to wrap up here would we recommend 1957's a face in the crowd Absolutely. It, it's really good. It's um, it's delightful to see Andy Griffith just lose his goddamn mind for two hours and five minutes. Everyone in it's really great. And Burl Ives shows up because I guess he owed someone a favor. Burl Ives is in it? Yeah, he's like uh, just sitting in a... He, he's a cameo. Okay. He's sitting in a bar. Okay. I didn't, I didn't pick up on that. 
Yeah, I would absolutely recommend it. Um, I mean, all my like nitpicking about subtlety and everything aside, like it is a solid political movie. Um, it's incredibly cynical, as we've said, but you know, it that also makes it incredibly relevant. Um, and not just like the figure of Lonesome Rones himself, but there are a lot of parallels you can draw between how things go in this movie and the way the media operates to things that we see going on today. So it's a very it's a very captivating watch. Yeah, I agree. I, I would recommend it. I think it's um, it's interesting. It's well acted. It's well written. It's well directed. It's just good. Uh, recommend it to political friends. And I think this movie will continue to um, age like a like a fine wine because I think as we get more, unfortunately, more demagogues and populists in in the future, um, they're going to continue to draw comparisons. People will continue to draw comparisons to to this film. Mm -hmm. uh yeah i i am with all of these gents i am a big fan it is one of my favorite movies of the 50s for me like there's a good number of movies from the from the some from the silent era and then the 30s and 40s that i think uh really pop and sizzle and then once you hit 60s 70s onward and the you know the restraints were removed uh you get a lot of really great cinema but the 50s for me uh, overall, I felt is I feel is a little bit more of a dead era. There's a little bit too much uh, leave it to Beaver. Golly gee, isn't this great? Kind of like like there's you know just stuff is is way is very very sanitized in a lot of 1950s movies, and this is not that. This is very raw and brutal and smart and engaging. Uh, Andy Griffith and Patricia Neal in particular are fantastic, but Elia Kazan's direction and how the whole package is put together is incredibly impressive. So, and then you yeah, obviously the, the political relevance that it had at the time. And as Doug says, will continue to have as long as people exist. Um, but yeah, the only other thing I, I didn't mention was the, uh, the score and soundtrack of this movie is actually pretty solid. Um, Lonesome is uh, not really a country singer. He, he has a guitar, he plays some songs, he does, write some songs i think he's got free man in the morning is the big one and there's a handful of others you hear at different points in the movie um and the songs are actually really good it's a good soundtrack and it works both for the kind of manipulation reasons within the film that he's trying to get across but also just as like good well-made you know kind of country and also commercially jingles kind of thing so uh it's a good score and soundtrack if you uh are so inclined and that kind of stuff to track it down and it also kind of pairs well i realized with our next film which is bob roberts from 1992 with tim robbins and that is a kind of similar movie about the rise of a political figure and he is a conservative folk singer and i didn't make the connection that lonesome roads to some degree is also kind of a folk singer it's not nearly as emphasized as uh as bob roberts is but uh so bob roberts will be our next uh you know, the, the next film that we look at and that one will come after this and will these two will you know you'll, you'll be listening to these right before the election so sometime that weekend leading up to tuesday Okay, so that is 1957's A Face in the Crowd. Join us next time for Bob Roberts. See you.